podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's Morning. the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk, Neil Atkinson, and starting the show with John Keith to come, Shabby Alonso, uh, Robbie Fowler, and the author, Daniel Gray, 3pm Saturdays. But I've got my big hitter first. I've got John Keith joining me <laughs> to talk about, well, to talk about his book and also to talk about the stage shows that he's got lined up. And I think it's important, John, we do some stuff with the Anfield Wrap that people put over that... It's a show. It's a it's 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 a night out. It's a, there's there's an element of performance to you these things. You go and you come out, and that's it. Yeah, it's it's not. And it's it's not quite like that. No, it? I think people think it's, oh, it's just going to be a bit of a flat out. First, we'll talk about the one you're doing in the in the Floral Pavilion and you Brighton on the 26th of May with Ian Callahan and Phil Neal and Jimmy Case. I mean, these are. I saw the woman who's doing the AV for this. There's a lot that goes into this, isn't it? It's not just the idea that they just chat a little bit. You're, well, there's a lot of it. About. You've given me the opportunity to pay tribute to Jill Beatty, who uh, her company's called Arch to You Limited, and she is fabulous and she what i do is when we've got the show booked i then start to put it together and as you know it's got to be written but not just written it's got to be um it's got to be synchronized with with audio and with rolling images first of all i've got to sort out the audio because i've got a vast audio library going back many years because when I was on the Daily Express, I used to do interviews and tape them and keep them. So I don't know why I thought to do it then, but it's been invaluable. So this is stuff that people will never even have heard before in oh, some yes. instances. Oh, yeah. yes. We have exclusive audio clips in the, in the Cops Roman Carnival of, of Paisley, of the players, of Peter Robinson. And we've even got a very nice piece from one of the fans who travelled to Rome by train. Uh, and things like that. So it's fresh, it's new. We've also, just to change the pace a little, there's a very wonderful Whittle-based singer called Ian Ross. He sings all over the globe. He's going to perform live for us in the Italian type of mood which the show <laughs> engenders. And Jill is putting all this together. So I know when we get to the theatre, well, before that, she'll ring me and we'll have a run-through. But I know when we get to the theatre on the night, it'll be wonderfully... Uh, sorted, it'll be streamlined, she'll press a button at the appropriate times and she's behind the stage, people don't even know she's there, she's even reluctant to come out and take a bow at the end but I <laughs> but tell she's you she's part what, of the show because but she is a key part of the show and they're out of that, therefore, that's why it's different. It's not just what you've heard before from Ian Callahan, Phil Neal, and Jimmy Case, which many times is worth hearing over and over again. But it's the idea that they're able to use what Paisley says that you've got that no one else has heard before as a jumping off point to say, well, actually, John, this was this was happening at the time, and this is the way in which this felt. Well, exactly. And also, Neil, when they hear a clip from Bob, it then sparks something in. They said, oh, I remember. And then you go off, and then you find it's totally fresh. Things they've never said before, mm. so it's 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 self prompting in a way. When you do these things, I think it's I think that this is now. It's about sort of putting over the personalities as well. And Jim, yeah. you know, I've I've done an event with Ian, and he's you know people say he's a shy man, and he is quite a shy man. But once he starts talking, for instance, Ian Callan, he's so such a compelling speaker, and he sort of demands your attention and his breadth of, of knowledge and the way in which he's, you know, he's so modest about about, about his, his remarkable achievements, but he, he he very much evokes the sense of place and, and what it was like then. Well, he does. Uh, and the thing about Ian, you say he's shy. When, when I did the first show I ever did, a stage show, it was September 2006, and it was the 25th anniversary of Bill Shankly's death. And Ian, at that stage, on stage, was very shy. But now he's a very polished, 
stage performer. He's been through so many shows we've done over more than a decade. And as you say, he carries so much authority mm. because he's lived and played through all this. He's got an experience nobody else has. I mean, he's the only player to have played in the old second division and then to have gone through and won the European Cup with Liverpool. It's, it's an amazing run. You know, he played against the Lincoln Cities and Bristol Rovers and also against the Munch and Gladbachs and Benficas. So the, the man is invaluable, as are, of course, people like Phil Neal and Jimmy Case. And they're all very different as well. Yeah, so three quite different personalities, aren't they? Yes. And also three quite different backgrounds. Phil coming from outside the city and, yes. you know, Ian and Jimmy. And I think that, again, when you're, you know, being able to give those really quite different perspectives, obviously, as you say, Ian sort of grows up with it, whereas Phil's very much a player who's, who's brought into the club and goes on to have the success he has. Yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, well, that's right. I mean, I think you've got to try to get that mix of different people and personalities because they've all got, in their own ways, a different story to tell. I mean, Phil came in and hardly knew Bill Shankly. Um, Ian, of course, played for Bill Shankly and Bill looked after him like a father. So when he came into Bob Paisley, Bob, be it was sort of a friend and a confidant who'd suddenly become manager. Yeah. So Ian has all these different experiences, as does Phil. And Jimmy Case. Jimmy Case is very funny. Uh, he's, a great, he's a great comedian, <laughs> is Jimmy. And he, and he loves it. He loves doing it. And that's again. It, it is. It's it, it just a set, set, set back there. It says here. You know, it's a unique stage show, and it is to put over to people that it's. If there is an act of performance. I think that's an important thing, John. I know when you come on and do stuff with us on the Anfield app, people very much like when you do the impressions, you tell the jokes. It's important <laughs> to say, but it is. It's important to say to people that it's not a flat evening because I, when we do our stuff, people never know what to expect. And I've been told recently we should talk more about it. So I'm using this as a bit of an excuse to say, no, no, no. It isn't just. It isn't. It, it, this will defy your expectations. It goes way beyond what you think you're going to get. You're going to get these three personalities, the huge personalities, yours as well, and you very much want to send people out with a smile on the face, with new information, with things they didn't have before. That's what we want to achieve here. That's right. And also, I'd like to stress both in this show, the Cops Roman Carnival, and the one we're doing the previous week, which is an audience with Clem and Latch, they can actually meet the players after the show. Uh, in the foyer, they're both at New Brighton Floral Pavilion, Clem and Latch on the 18th of May, and the Cops Roman Carnival on the well, 26th. On Clem and Latch, it's an interesting, you know, to do, to cover Everton as well, because of course you covered Everton in the period. We now know oh, you've yes. covered Liverpool. Oh, yes, you covered, sure. You covered the whole patch for the Daily Express before other jobs as well, and, yeah. you know, Everton in the period, it's a fascinating story of, you know, the shift from the mid-60s into the into the 70s, and then the, the rebirth under Kendall in the 80s, and Latchford's a very, very good person to speak to about that. Well, they are, and also these two have both got big anniversaries looming. Ray Clements is the 50th anniversary in June of when he signed for Liverpool. Oh, is it? Good Lord. Uh, and Bob Latchford is approaching the 40th anniversary season of his 30 league goals for Everton. I mean, of course, the 70s wasn't the greatest decade for Everton, but Bob was the shining light for them. He, yep. he was top scorer in 20-plus goals in three successive seasons, 30 league goals in 77, 78. And, of course, they were England teammates as well. So I think it'll be a fascinating show, and they're both great talkers with great stories to tell. And, again, it's being able to focus in that environment on, for instance, the way in which Merseyside derbies were back then. And I'm with one coming up on the horizon right now as we're talking, yeah. not, not around the time of the event. But it, the derby's changed in many ways, but the intensity hasn't and being able to put that being able to talk about that intensity of the occasion is will be a, will you know will be a fantastic thing on the evening yes it will uh, and there's one save that ray clemens made from latchford which ray himself classes as one of his greatest ever 
Uh, I was there, and I still didn't know how he did it. It was Gary Jones had gone down the right flank for Everton, and as he cut in, Clem ran towards him to the edge of his box. At that point, Gary crossed the ball, and there was Bob Lashford rising, and we all said goal. And somehow, Ray Clemens sprinted and then threw himself and tipped the ball away. It was quite unbelievable. Bob himself says, I still don't believe it didn't go in. <laughs> so he's going to talk about that and, and obviously other things about Liverpool Everton at the time, the managers. They, they played under, of course, Ray played under Shankly and Paisley and Bob Latchford played under Billy Bingham and Gordon Lee. So there's a lot to talk about and um, we're looking forward to it. That's a very different show from the other one. This, the Clem and Latch one, is the three of us sitting on stage, chatting and taking questions from the audience. We, we'd like a lot of questions and they can put their own questions. So if, you go to, if you're going, come with questions. Exactly. Uh, excellent. Okay, I just want to talk in a second about Ronnie Moran, but I want to talk about both of these things very quickly. Uh, Thursday the 18th of May, uh, 20, uh, sorry, Thursday the 18th of May at half past seven, the Floral Pavilion in New Brighton for the Clem and Latch event. And on Friday the 26th of May, uh, also the New Brighton Floral Pavilion, uh, half past seven for the, uh, the the Cops Roman Carnival event, very much time and on the 40th anniversary of Liverpool's magical first European Cup uh, triumph. So that is the 26th of May at the Floral Pavilion for that one. Um, on John, you know, this week, uh, Ronnie Moran passed away and he's a man that you, you'll have known personally, that you'll have been close to and, and who underpins, you know, all of these eras from 1967 going back way before then, right the way through until the late 90s, simply at the club, but not just as a supporter of the club and the lover of football, you know, years since he left Liverpool. What are your abiding memories of, of Ronnie Moran? My abiding memories of Ronnie Moran are a man who um, had, well... Kevin Keegan said about Bob Paisley, he, he was the, the only man in football he knew, didn't have any ego. Well, I could apply that also to Ronnie Moran. He was, he was the glue which stuck everything together at Liverpool. Um, he arrived, a very strange arrival. He was playing schoolboy football and the local postman saw him playing and the local postman also served Liverpool director T.V. Williams' house. So he recommended to T.V. Williams they sign this young lad. So it was Postman's Knock for Ronnie. <laughs> and uh, he signed as a kid um, and, of course, went on. Great player uh, and uh, captain. Was he a good player? Yeah, he was, he was a very... I use the word great player. I, I, he was a very, very good player. He was a very dependable fullback, was Ronnie. Play on either fullback flank and could, of course, take penalties very yep. well too. Uh, he, he scored some, not just penalties, you, you know, if he got the ball handily, he'd whack one. Um, but I think his greatest contribution to Liverpool was after he'd hung up his boots. His last game, of course, uh, against Inter Milan in 1965 in that, uh, well, a game that, that, well, the tie that left Shanks in deep, uh, yep. in deep depression and disappointment because it was mired in corruption and bribery and everything else. But that was Ronnie's last uh, playing contribution. But... In the back room, he was an essential part of the boot room because um, he he would pick up on things the manager and the manager's assistant maybe didn't have a great deal of time to think about. And he would pick up on things and say, look, one of the players, you're not doing that right. Do it this way. Um, but I, I think he was the man who kept Liverpool's feet on the ground because if, if they ever won anything everyone would be celebrating and Ronnie would celebrate for five minutes. And then it was, that's gone now. Let's think about the next thing. And if anything, 
He personified the creed of Liverpool because that was very much what they were about. If we won a double, let's go for a treble next season. They're never, never satisfied. It's, it is. It, it, when people talk about that, you know, it's, it seems ever so slightly like something from another era, though I'm sure that at every successful club, they actually have somebody like that quite continuously. But it is very much, it's always come across to me from the outsiders a man who just did the job that's in front of him. So that job's done. We've, we've, we've achieved what we've achieved, and now there's the next job to do. And you just keep doing the next job that's in front of you. And it's, you, know, it, you enjoy it, but it's a serious piece of work. And that, that's what comes from the outside to me. If everyone makes it, Ronnie Moran reminded everyone it was a serious job that they were doing. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think Tommy Smith once said he, he could moan for England, Ronnie. But I think he meant that in a, in a nice way, really, because... He was moaning to get a positive reaction. Exactly. This was the point. Um, and um, we know the story about the medals at the end of the season after they've won anything. It was Ronnie's job to give the medals out. And he'd give the medal and say, well done. Don't forget, July the 14th, back in training. Take care of yourself in the summer. You've got to be even better next season. And that was the re reality check of Ronnie Moran. OK, brilliant to speak to John Keith. Let's do the dates again. Uh, Clem and Latch on the 18th of May at the Floral Pavilion. Uh, 0151-666-0000 or floralpavilion.com, uh, New Brighton. And uh, the Friday the 26th of May, the Cops Roman Carnival. Uh, 7.30 start for this for both of them as well. Uh, also at the Floral Pavilion. Uh, and again, the same number applies. 0151-666-0000 or floralpavilion.com. Great to speak to John. And after the break, we'll be speaking to Robbie Fowler. Obviously, breaking through when I was 18 was probably the moment uh, that my life changed around uh, completely. I've done okay for England uh, in the summer tournament before under 18. Um, yeah, and I was in around the first team for, a, for, well, for a good few months before I made my debut. Um, never really got a chance until we played Everton. We played Everton on the Saturday. We lost 2-0. And became evident that I was going to make a great soon. Was going to make a few changes. Uh, you know, thankfully for me, I was uh, I was the change, and uh, you know, came in and you know, started scoring goals straight away. So, yeah, you can imagine you, a young 18-year-old um, you know, playing for you know an unbelievable club like Liverpool. You know, your life is going to change. Was it frustrating to wait until you were 18 years old? It felt a little bit like maybe Sunnis had held you back. Did he talk you through why, or did he explain to you? Um, yeah, obviously, I've made my debut, I've been around, so um, I honestly don't think I was held back. I think uh, I've been around the squad, as I said, for a few months before. Um, in fact, I was probably, I'm trying to think about, we played Tottenham last game of the season, the first year of the Premier League, uh, we won 6-2. I was actually on the substitute bench, uh, I think there was a lot of injuries and I got in. Uh, and obviously, I had to wait for, you know, for a long a long time to really get my first goal, but yeah, I didn't feel as though I was um, I was held back. You know, I think Graham was, was was very good with me. You know, I, I continued to score goals and reserves. Uh, I think when it mattered, um, look, you know, it's everything all uh, in hindsight. But uh, yeah, who knows if uh, if it had played a bit earlier, I might have struggled and uh, you know, quite being as ready as what I would have liked. And uh, I think I, I sort of fell into it at the right time. You get get the goal against Fulham and then the five in the in the replay. Did you feel after that or at any stage through your Liverpool career that there was more pressure on you because you were a local lad? Um, I, I think certainly growing up and, and you know being a Liverpool lad, playing for Liverpool, I think people may think there's a there's a heightened expectation. There's obviously a little bit more pressure on you. I never really seen that to be honest. Maybe I did when I got a little bit older and I was um, you know maybe struggling, but. 
I didn't see that as a Liverpool lad thing. I just seen that as a you know type of player that I was, you know, where I was confident. And if you're not playing uh, as well as what you uh, you you would have liked, then um, you know questions will be asked. So um, yeah, I don't think just because I was a Liverpool lad there was more more pressure on me. You always seem so com- confident on the football pitch, um, almost at times bordering on cockiness, which you know could be a is a trait that a lot of top, you know a lot of Europe's top strikers would would have and should have, in my opinion. Did you ever get nervous? Was that the, the reality? Um, I, I can think of probably you know a few times where I was a little bit nervous. But going through my career, I don't think I was I ever was. Uh, went into games, I was always comfortable. I was always confident. Uh, I was never phased by who I was playing against, who, where I was playing, who I was up against, uh, or whatever stadium. It, you know, it didn't didn't bother me. Um, I think I knew I knew where where I could and couldn't step over over the um, over the mark. So yeah, I know people might perceive that as a little bit of cockiness. Um, I think I was just uh, just extremely confident growing up. So I don't I don't think I was cocky anyway. Um, you scored some great goals during your time at Liverpool. What one are you most proud of, or what one do you enjoy looking back on the most? Playing for Liverpool, being a Liverpool lad, and um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head what, what goals have, have probably meant more. And I mean, I've scored, you know, two yarders. I've scored, you know, goals from you know, 25, 30 yards. Um, I don't really know. I mean, I'm probably the most satisfied I've ever been after scoring a goal was um, you know my first game back. Uh, from a broken leg was uh, was the winner in the Merseyside derby. Uh, obviously, growing up an Everton fan, and you know the amount of stick I I used to take off the Everton fans for you know for, for choosing Liverpool uh, you know, to score that goal was uh, was was sweeter. So um, yeah, I think that was probably the goal that you know I really look back fondly fondly on. Looking back at both your first and second spell, which moment would you relive again if you could go back to it? Um, right, I'm trying to think of um, you know two spells at Liverpool. Um, you know, I'm trying to think. It's hard one. This. So I, I've obviously played Liverpool for two spells. Um, you know, trying to maybe pick uh, a best moment uh, would be extremely difficult. Um, I mean, by far the best thing that ever happened to me uh, involved in Liverpool was re-signing for Liverpool. Uh, and that would have happened if I hadn't left the first time. So um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a dodgy answer. But um, you know, signing for Liverpool was just just wonderful. And and the fact is that you'd played at other clubs and you knew what the clubs were like. But then you sort of realised how special Liverpool was, um, and how good Liverpool was, how good everything about the club. You know, the fans, the club itself, the uh, you know the people within the uh, the, the backroom staff, and you know, people within the offices. We're all fantastic. So, um, yeah, I, I think, I know it's not a football moment, but uh, re-signing for Liverpool the, the second time was was unreal. And how did you find out um, that Benitez wanted you back? Can you can you remember how you felt? Yeah. I, I mean, I was playing for, for, obviously, Manchester City at the time. And when I'm saying I was playing, I obviously fell out with uh, Stuart Pearce. And uh, I suppose I was on gardening leave. Uh, and obviously, one... Um, one one weekday was I was playing golf with obviously a few friends of mine, uh, and I got a phone call off Rafa, and he was saying was it would have been interested in going back to Liverpool. I actually thought it was a wind up, um, you know, not playing for Man City. You think hmm, well, maybe no one's really going to touch you now. So um, yeah, I ended up you know realising it was Rafa. I left my clubs with my mate and went straight round to Anfield and, and had a chat with him. So uh, 
Yeah, that's how it came about. It was just, it was just about to tee off. So um, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't for Rafa, I reckon I'd have been a scratch golfer by now. You're known as God, the Liverpool fans. How does it feel to be remembered in that way? I, th- I think nicknames in football are, are brilliant. Um, I mean, at Liverpool, you always get, you know, the amount of players and the amount of nicknames that are given are, are brilliant. And there's a lot of thought and cleverness that goes into a lot of them. Um, me, I've got the, uh, you know, the, the God nickname. And look, it is honestly, it's a, a bit embarrassing. Uh, I only say that because I mean, it is by far the best name you, nickname you can have in football. But uh, it's embarrassing because I think of when... When you look over Liverpool's history and the amount of players and the amount of quality players and world-class players they've had, uh, and then you know this little skinny scout kid gets uh, gets laboured with um, with uh, the nickname God, uh, that's what I mean by it's embarrassing. But it's uh, it's quite frightening. Uh, and look, you know, it, it shows I have done something right in my career in my Liverpool career. And uh, you know, I don't go around calling myself that much, to be fair. But um, yeah, it, it is. It's an unreal nickname. So we call you God. Do you think your career gets the recognition it deserves amongst the wider football in world? You know, you, you score one and two for Liverpool. You win two FA, two PFA awards in a row, uh, and everything else you achieved the game. Do you think they appreciate what you did? Um, it's, a, it's a good question actually, and one that I've never really thought of. Um, I think me playing for Liverpool, you know, more than happy, and uh, obviously get the, the recognition or worldwide recognition from the Liverpool fans, but. I honestly don't think I get it from you know from the outside world, whether you're you know a Premier League um, club supporter. Uh, I think they just see me as um, you know you know maybe a player who scored a few goals here and there. But um, yeah, I probably don't. To be fair, but, I mean there's not a lot I can do. I knew I was a good player. Uh, I look as long as the uh, the Liverpool fans knew I was okay. I was uh, more than happy with that. Some more from John Keith here for the podcast for us uh, for the podcast of the City Talk Show. And he's uh, talking about Reykjavik to Rome, which is the book that you've written, John. You've written a souvenir book of the 40th anniversary to go with the other work you're doing. Yes, I have, Neil. Well, uh, it's, as you know, as you say, it's the 40th anniversary in May of Liverpool's first European Cup win, an amazing night in Rome in 1977. I was at the first ever European game at Anfield, Reykjavik, in um, September 1964. And I was in Rome as well, reporting with the Daily Express and most of the games in between. And I thought... There's so many wonderful stories to tell. Let's do a book about just to capture those 13 years. And that's what this book is with some lovely illustrations of various things and funny stories along the way. Uh, The joy, the heartbreak, none more so, of course, heartbreak than Bill Shankly's uh, epic duels with Inter Milan, which, of course, were... Mm mired in terrible controversy about um, bribery and corruption. But it was just the journey, the odyssey from Reykjavik in 1964 to that terrific night in in the Stadio Olimpico in Rome in 1977 when finally they, they crossed the threshold. I think that was the landmark result of Liverpool history. Even more, slightly more, I would say, even the 65 FA Cup win, which was massive at the time. But to take that step in Europe to become champions of Europe, I think, was the landmark result in Liverpool's history. I think there's... We can lose the context of that, John. I think it's important to point that out, that that's where the club goes from being a national phenomenon. Not just the club, the the knock-on effect of the city, because the hordes of red, because of what, what, what the end looks like, because the world gets to see and hear 
and experience this side and it's you know with epitomized by Keegan with his his work ethic and all of that sort of yes. stuff in 77 that that it's the moment where sort of you know where, where it, you know to use a music metaphor where someone goes from number 1 in the UK to number 1 in America as well exactly. it's, it's that moment where suddenly yeah. you're now it's now you're now stellar and there's yeah. there's no there's no coming back from that to to use uh, an idiom of today when it went viral really. yeah yeah yes i quite agree um because until you become champions of Europe, you are just you're a great club in your own country, but you have to take you have to cross that threshold. And that's exactly what they did um, under a man who was so sophisticated in uh, in his football knowledge and application and yet found it difficult to put a sentence together. And that's Bob Paisley. Well, that, that's always struck me as I, I recently I was told about Phil Thompson talk about this. And I'm, I'm, earlier you mentioned, you know, Ronnie Moran saying to players, just sentences on how to improve. And this to me has always been the, almost frustrating in that, you know, in the book you mentioned, uh, the Ajax game and Rhinus Michaels and yes. Johan Cruyff and different countries, fo- countries, football traditions. What they do is they turn out men like Rhinus Michaels and they encourage them to write down what they do. And what that does is it ends up almost becoming like a tactical textbook. Yes. Whereas someone like Paisley remains spectacularly underrated because everyone buys into the, the slippers and the, not putting a sentence together. The whereas, woolly cardigan. The woolly cardigan. Exactly. Whereas, you know, you don't win what you win like that by accident. You've got to have a, an unbelievable tactical mind, be able to get that over to your players, improve your players, yes. coach your players, get them doing what you want to do. You've got to have all that. And we sort of, we almost take it a little bit for granted because there aren't quotable bits or there isn't a textbook or, or all of that. Well, exactly. When I did Bob's Bob's official biography, I was very conscious of this and I tried to get in the book as much as I could of of what Bob had said and done to us over the years, because to cut a long story short, he asked us uh, four national newspaper men if we would finish his sentences for him at the press conferences. We had a joke. We called him the train robber. He never finished sentences. <laughs> but, uh, no, but, but he asked us one day, we sat in his office and he asked four of us. He said, well... You know what I'm trying to say, like, so if you can go and put it into the proper words. So we had this great, and that lasted all the way through his nine years as manager. And we said, well, that's fine, Bob, but we have a job to do, and we're going to have to criticise at times. He said, I know all that, but just get over what I'm... I said, OK. And, that, and it worked amazingly. But when I did the book, so I had this... I felt a responsibility to put down in print every little nuance of what Bob had said, because if you listen to him... He was, in, he was a genius. I mean, Shanks was inspired and outrageous, but Bob was the genius as a manager. I mean, he took the club on that bit more after Bill had, had retired. And um, Do you remember, can, you know, when you're watching these games, Shanks retires. And I think in general there was there being a bit of a move in the way Liverpool played football anyway towards the back end of, of, of Shankly being in charge. But do you remember a game in particular, even just a run-of-the-mill league game where you suddenly realise... The football's come on here. It's now a more, you know, more more passing out from the back, more patience. Was there is there a game where you remember thinking, I can see what Bob's trying to do? Well, the, the one thing that sticks out in a match uh, about Bob, uh, well, two. <laughs> the more you think about it, the more they come in your head. One was the um, one was fascinating, and this is his psychology. Was the second leg against Bayern Munich in 1981 after they'd drawn 0-0 at Anfield and the uh, Germans had actually given their fans roadmaps to the Parc des Princes for the final. And a supporter gave uh, one of the players this and it was in the dressing room because Bob made capital of that. But the big thing he did, while he was talking to the players, there was a knock on the dressing room door and an Austrian UEFA official was there and say, uh, 
could I speak to Bob Page? He said, aye, speaking, what do you want? He said, we want to know, Mr Paisley, about Howard Gale. And he said, he's a registered player with LFC, get out of my dressing room. And Bob explained later, he was Austrian, Austrians and Germans, you never know, is he, has he been sent in there? So, of course, when, um, when uh, Kenny Dalglish was injured, he didn't send on Ian Rush because they knew about him. He sent on Howard Gale because he knew the Germans knew nothing about him. And he ran Bayern ragged. Eventually had to take him off because he was going to get sent off, Howard. But what a job he did in that game. But that was a, an instance of Bob's thinking and the psychology. And I thought, how clever. You know, any man who's got Rush or Howard, you'd send on Rush, but not him. Sent on Howard Gale. Is that in the period, you know, when you're mentioning going right the way through, the... The tough one that I sort of struggle with is is how you know, for instance, in the Ajax, the famous Ajax game is is exactly how shrouded you mentioned there, Howard Gale. You know, it's it's difficult to put over. I think to people now, yes. Liverpool supporters now, or not just football supporters in general, when we know everything about everybody. You know, how many times you must have been away with the club when they were going to what to play against a side? They didn't know anything about them. You know, and that it was you know, there's the Iron Curtain, but also in general, there's not as much TV coverage. There was literally in the IX game the fog. You know, the whole. Yes. It's hard to put over. I think to people, isn't it? How shrouded a mystery the European game was. Almost every game, well, every game becomes its own adventure. Well, well, absolutely right. Now they were drawn against Petrolol Ploesti from the deep Romanian oil fields, so they said. We don't know anything about Petrolol Ploesti. Who are they? Where are they? Romania, right? So they deputed. Um, Reuben Bennett, who was another unrecognised and unheralded member of the boot room, but very, very close to Shanks, a gritty Scot. The stories about Reuben are legion. We haven't got time. Must do a, must do a show about Reuben. But Shanks says to him, right, Reuben, you're off to Romania. Now, then the visas and the red tape. He was away six days looking at one match. And when he came back, he had this thick dossier. So the day before they play Petrolol, they're all there round the table, and Shank says, now, boys, we're playing Romanian, this Romanian side tomorrow. And Ruben says, right, Bill, I've got all the stuff here. And he says, no, nah, we don't want to hear about them, we're just going to concert. So he's been, <laughs> he'd been away six days, got a dust. Shanks didn't even let him speak. <laughs> That's in the book. Just go get on. That one's in the book. Uh, the book is, uh, as I say, you can get it from, uh, it's from mail order. You call, uh, do you want to read the number out for us, Yes, John? it's zero, um, sorry, oh, one, Start again. Oh one treble seven three seven one five treble six. Also, if you live anywhere near Southport, it's in that wonderful bookshop Broadhurst in Market Street. Okay, so that's oh one treble seven three seven one five six six six, and it's also at Broadhead's book Broadhurst's bookshop Market Street Southport. And you can also ring them if you want to as well. Oh one seven oh four five three two zero six four. Uh, from Rome to Reykjavik, the forty years uh, written down by John Keith Rom all the old clips and tapes that he's got for you there, uh, all a little bit different and fresh from John. Very kind of him to come in today. That's uh, a great pleasure, Neil. Thank you. Oh, it's, it's the Anfield Rap on Radio City Talk, and we've got absolutely everything that you need. Welcome back to the Anfield Rap on Radio City Talk. Last week, the Anfield Rap was invited out to speak to Shabby Alonso uh, about his whole career, really. Went out to Munich, John Gibbons and Andy Heaton. It's a fabulous interview. Here's an excerpt from it. It's kind of often said when foreign players come to England, it's the technique and they're just automatically better Jamie turned around, he said, I don't actually think it's just that. He said, could you, you can't tell me that most of the players who come to England are as technically good as Steven Gerrard. But he said, what he found with players that came to Liverpool that he seen was they had the best understanding of the game. That's probably the, the big issue about the English game. 
uh, of course, you need to be a great athlete, you need to be great in striking the ball, great tackle, of course. But the most important thing is the head and to, to be able to, to understand the game. And especially for a midfielder, that's what that's what I think in my in my position, no. And and that's that's something that I did during my years in Sociedad, during my years in Madrid, in Liverpool, in Madrid, and here in, in Munich, because that's how I understand football. And I don't want myself to play well. I want to play well. The players around me to be able to play better. That's when I feel when I feel that I've done my job, and the team works better normally. So that first season, you mentioned you mentioned some of the games before Olympiacos, Juventus. That atmosphere is growing and growing, and you think you've seen Anfield. You think oh, I've played at Anfield in the league, and then you see that atmosphere grow in the Champions League. It must have been an amazing sight, an amazing thing to play in front of. Oh, of course, you know that's. I think that the ones that we were there that night against Chelsea, because I was on the stands, I yeah. was <laughs> so I think that it were. You know, it's it's, it's going to be. I haven't seen anything like it so far, you know, really? after after 13 years, more or less, after that, really? But nothing like that. I, I, the, 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 how it it felt, how it was sounding, it was rocking the atmosphere. Yeah. The thrill, it was electric, the, the atmosphere. Because, you know, it was it was unexpected for everyone to get to the final. To, yeah. be, to be honest, no one would, would expect. But to, to get that chance and to be one nil up, against a super team like Chelsea that they were by far leaders in the, in the Premier League it was it was like wow it's like ghost camps it's yeah. right now to me I mean the, the home games are special as well but the away games that season in the Champions League Liverpool played very well uh, a big performance of yours was away at Juventus you came back from injury I don't know how yeah. fit you were but you played terrifically well, well I, then I made it, it. <laughs> <laughs> I went through it I went through 90 minutes of course uh, we, we were struggling with, with injuries not Stevie. myself Stevie as yeah. well we had to play change the system but Rafa was so 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 good at preparing the, the plans the strategy he yeah. was like for uh, cup games, he was so thoughtful to analyze the, the opponent and hit on. Uh, we need to try to make this plan, and it worked. So uh, it wasn't the most spectacular and beautiful game, yeah. but it was the best professional performance that we needed at that moment. In that Champions League campaign, at what point did you believe? So you got Olympiacos, you get that other way. At what point do you start to think, maybe? Uh, once, once, uh, once we beat uh, Juve. Yeah. And think that once uh, we were in semi-final, uh, we thought it's so close. It's so close, and uh, we are gonna go against Chelsea. It's gonna be tough, but we, we can make it. We can make it, and, and of course, uh, we knew that the first game of the Sanford, which was was the key one, because we could. We need to to come alive and to have a chance after that game. And with the nil-nil, everything was. I re- I remember that Mourinho said. Uh, most of the Liverpool fans, they think they are already in the final. But well, we know, we knew that with nil-nil, it, it was still very open. But, yeah. And at the end, you know, after there was the, the <laughs> and game. Then, and then obviously you end up playing for Jose in Madrid for a couple of seasons yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. It must have been interesting going from Rafa to... Ah, yeah, yeah, it was interesting, you know. And after coming from Mo to Pep, you know. Yeah. <laughs> with Angela, yeah. And, yeah. You know, during my career, I have... But I have been always very close to, to manage because I try to understand what how they think, why yeah. they take the decisions, to be able to do, to perform better what they want, and to get close to them in, in the respecting the the player uh, manager, you know, Gerard, you know, uh, chain in command. Yeah. <laughs>
So Istanbul, then you're walking out and you've been in Liverpool less than a year and you've got a Champions League final. You must be thinking, yeah, that was a good move. It's real, it's happening so, so quickly. <laughs> you know, but I can't, I don't really remember so many things before the game, the preparation, how was it? I, I don't really remember. I remember most of the things in, during the game and the halftime and, and after the game. But before the game, I, I don't remember if we did something special to prepare. I don't think so. I think that it was pretty normal, all the preparation, the, the build-up for the game. When was it decided that you would take a penalty if you it got was one? before the game. I think that because uh, the last game in, in Premier League, Stevie missed a penalty against Tottenham. Right. So uh, Rafa said, uh, pretty, pretty much top. Uh, in case of penalty, or, uh, or Xavi or, or Harry will take the penalty. Um, I, I, Harry was not in the pitch. I had to be. I had to be the one. It was my first professional penalty. No, yeah. wow. <laughs> I had never taken a penalty in Chelsea. It was my first one, you know. And I see. I, I've seen many times. Uh, I look nervous. In the pitch, I, I, I was like, wow, this is responsibility. Come on. This is a big responsibility. I wasn't nervous, but I, 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 I was feeling the big responsibility, mm. you know. And, you know, probably the story would have been totally different if I would have got the rebound and I would have to score. Yeah. Probably, uh, probably we wouldn't. Maybe we, are, we wouldn't be talking here right <laughs> now. But then, but, doesn't that just go add to the narrative of the performance, though? Like, the against all the like, drama. You missed the penalty, and then you put it away. Yeah, yeah. Everything. And then... The, the, the mystic there yeah. <laughs> makes it bigger. And, exactly. Uh, to, to the way it was. Lose the penalty, get the wrong. After in the penalties, uh, the, the shootout, Stevie was going to take it. Uh, wow. Yeah, everything became, the mystic came bigger and bigger. Did you want to take a penalty in the shootouts? Actually, in the in the when Rafa was deciding, Rafa asked me, "Shall uh, you want to take penalty?" Yeah. Okay, Rafa, which penalty am I taking? No, you're not taking. Okay, 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 okay. I got it. I got Why it. did you ask? I got it. <laughs> you might have been on six. Maybe six, maybe six, but Steve was going to be the fifth one for sure. Yeah, and then the, the celebrations when you came back, it felt like everyone in the whole country had come to Liverpool for that, that sea of red. And... Well, that was, uh, you know, madness, oh, how old the city. You know, it was first title. It was Champions League, meaning for Liverpool after so many years without winning it. The fifth one, the way it was, uh, you know, we have talked so much about it. It's yeah, it's football history. Yeah. everyone remembers. Everyone. I go here in Munich. Everyone remember in Madrid. We go to Singapore, New York. Everyone all over the world really remember that final. You know, yeah. and we were part of it. So, but. Shabby there, John Gibbons and Andy Heaton as well. It's a fantastic interview, 50 minutes long on theanfieldrap.com. If you want to listen to it, if you haven't had the opportunity to do so yet, you can go to theanfieldrap.com forward slash subscribe to hear the, the Anfield Rap speak in full for 50 minutes to Shabby Alonso about his career, his time at Liverpool, his outlook on football in general. It's got some fabulous tangents on there uh, as part of the Anfield Rap's player system. We've got loads and loads of fabulous uh, bits of audio for you to listen to pertaining to Liverpool Football Club, for, uh, shows from the historical to preview shows looking at the forthcoming games for the Reds. Uh, everything that you can want, tactics, anything that you could want about Liverpool Football Club, you can get from theanfieldrap.com. And if you don't subscribe at the moment, it's theanfieldrap.com forward slash subscribe. It's only £5 a month for a wide range of high quality shows. 
really think you'd like it. So if you're listening to this and you're into this sort of thing, let me and recommend it one more time. Theanfieldrap.com forward slash subscribe for more Xabi Alonso and more of absolutely everything you need when you're following the Reds. This is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. After the break, I'm going to be chatting to Dan Gray about his Saturday 3pm book and how it's made him love football all the more. That is the You and Me song by the Wanna Dies. Uh, you've got a fact about that, haven't you, Dan? Well, I think it's a fact. I'm starting to doubt myself, but, but that it seems to be, as far as I recollect, the music that Richard Hillman was playing in the car uh, and Coronation Street as the car plummeted in front of the Manchester Canals, as far as I can recall. I really hope it is true. Uh, I know, not... I'm worried it's not, but there'll be a lot of Coronation Street fans listening that can phone in and uh, correct me. Exactly. Text in. Text in if you disagree. Uh, it's lovely to speak to Dan Gray. I'm sure you know his voice by now in the Anfield rap. Uh, the People's Historian, uh, fabulous writer. And we're, I want to talk to him about his book, which, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm tempted to say, Dan, somewhat rudely, uh, rarely for someone attached to the Anfield rap, it appears to have been a roaring success. Yeah, it does. I've actually sold some for one, um, <laughs> which is rare, rare for one of my books, but they seem to have, have done well. And I got a a text from someone in Tasmania uh, who's seen it in a bookshop. So if that's not a measure of success, I don't know what it is. All, all I know about Tasmania is that, remember the CITV uh, cartoon from the 90s? That's probably just about <laughs> what I said back as well, the the, um, the excellent little Tasmanian devil cartoon. But anyway, I digress. It, it seems to have been doing well. People have, have really um, got behind it in terms of getting what it's about. Uh, they've given me their own delights as well. Um, which is sometimes helpful, sometimes not. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, I think that film signifies us as fans, whatever size of club we support. Well, I mean, one of the things that struck me with it today when I was sort of preparing to have another chat to you about the book uh, is when you say they're different sizes of club, the one thing, though, that sort of did occur to me was that it was international football sort of bounces off the sides a little bit, and I don't mean that just to get on a, a thing about how international football, etc., yeah. etc. What I mean is, you know, for instance, seeing a ground from a train is an example of one of the early ones in the book. But all the yeah. sort of, lots of the, the delights of modern football, they sort of need the, 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 the whirling dervish of madness that is club football, if you know what yeah, I mean, to really, to, to really come alive. I think that's absolutely right. It's, a, it's definitely a, a club football book, and, I, you know, I can't disguise that I'm not a massive international football fan, and the only good things about these week weeks we're having at the moment is it does get people out to other other grounds and to watch the football elsewhere. Up and down um, the country, know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it forces those of us that aren't really into it. And I think they are the, the niche thing. A lot of them, well, I thought were niche things, but it turns out, like, like seeing a ground from the train, it's a thing that a lot of us are into, apparently. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, yeah, absolutely club things. It's really for those of us that, that know what it's like to, to travel the length and breadth and, and to to go despite the despite the rain, as it were. And you just I don't know, there are lots of lots of people, especially in Scotland where I live, who are really into their, their national team, but it's never been a thing a big thing for me really. And and some of the away fan chants uh, at Germany v England last night exemplified why, but let's perhaps not go there. Let's not go there because we're very much about what's sweet and wonderful uh, when we we're are, having this we conversation, Dan. We are indeed. It's about, it's about what's sweet and wonderful. I just want to touch on one thing, which I think we've chatted about before, but which really grabbed me within the book is um, is Jimmy Armfield's voice. I think that's yeah. something which is, you know, 
for all the, I, I for instance, <laughs> almost uniformly at the moment, and uh, I'm not saying this just to be rude, but I find almost all of Radio 5 Live's current summarise just repellent to a man. And I'm sure they're all lovely people. But I think part of the reason why is because none of them are Jimmy Armfield at the minute no, for obvious I mean, reasons, because he's, he's not well, which is obviously a real shame and hope he obviously gets well soon. But, yeah. you know, it's it, you do sort of feel as if all these men are just left being interlopers to what should be the seat of the, the high priest of calm, relaxed, calm common sense Absolutely. himself and and gravitas and, and lack of lack of exaggerating things and giving them a greater importance than, than they've got um it, 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 that's you know jimmy's just a, a massive mr radio at the moment isn't he because of the the way the hype around the different pundits and the way they speak and the, just how everything has to be huge when it's not really and, and a lack of reflection on on the joys that are going on in the matches, that doesn't seem to happen with a, with a lot of, of pundits. Um, and the, it's a voice thing as well with Jimmy Armfield, the way his, his voice can give you goosebumps. And for me, it reminds me of my dad and, and being in the car listening. Um, and it's just a voice that, that takes you back somewhere in, in a way that modern, certain modern voices anyway don't. I, I, that's, I completely agree. It is, it is a sort of a it's just, it is just a joy and it's a it's a nostalgic joy and I recognise we have some listeners from overseas and they probably think it's a little bit strange but it is a it is quite a you know it's quite a specifically um, I don't even think it's specifically an English thing I think it's very much a it's very much a football voice I'd like to think that even if I didn't even necessarily have English as a first language but I could comprehend it I could understand why it is a a warm football blanket to relax yeah. into but. The other thing that's in the book, and it, it's it's wrong to sort of, I think, to a certain extent, to, to make the book sound like nostalgia, because it isn't. You deliberately say it's for the modern game. But also it's what is in there is the echoes of your former work, you know, around sort of things like uh, the, 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 uh, the, um, the uh, Hatters Railway Men and Knitters, the travels yeah. through the football. It's very much, again, you're not moving that far away from the, the quiet sociologist that's within you. That's... That's also there, but it's 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 more subtle. It's not you. You're very much it's 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 an undertone throughout the throughout the volume. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's very very kind of you to, to spot any amount of sociologist in me. I think that A level is finally coming into use. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, um, I did a sociology A level. I've just remembered that my my final project was about the um, voting intentions of of lecturers, and it was just a sneaky way of finding out who was a Tory at my college. Anyway. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, football to me, as so many listening to podcasts, is, is culture. It's part of culture. It's part of us and our society. It's part of our history. Um, and so these are these aren't just reflections on on us as football fans and what we think, but where you know, I think they appeal and for the understanding of us by, by outsiders. If that isn't a pitch for non-football likers to, to read and buy the book, then and I don't know what is. Well, I, I don't know how many of them are listening, but we'll play it. We'll, we'll chance our luck. Maybe, maybe, maybe they had the monetized talk. Yeah, <laughs> they had, there's going to be some monetized played at this point on the radio. Um, okay, I just want to sort of begin to sum it up. It's it is it's it's a lovely slim volume. It's a, a fantastic way to spend an afternoon. I would especially recommend reading it on a train whilst keeping one eye out for the ground. Uh, which, as I say, I'm I'm so pleased that so many people have responded to that. And that I mean, just before we do sort of close it and I do all the big sells, and that must be one of the one of the best parts of the fact that it's it's become successful and it is a popular book. Is that it's popular because people are people are responding to your eternal modern eternal delights, if you know what I mean. It becomes a shared and, yes, sense. And, and you know, it's, it's had a lovely effect of making me love football even more. And that's very hard this season as a middle fan. It's been <laughs> anything but lovable. And yet, 
this unity, people sending me, you know, a picture from Ewood Park of an away, away end going mental or all these little things, people, especially on Twitter, people from all over um, getting in contact to say this meant so much or I gave this to my dad and it made him cry and thanks for solving my Christmas present thing. This is me and my dad have bonded. I get emails from people saying, do you know that chapter about... about um, going to football with my dad. You're right, it's the only time me and dad even speak. We see each other once every fortnight at Time Castle and things. And So people getting in contact, making you realise you're part of this community, making me feel incredibly grateful that I'm of football, for all it can frustrate me. I just cannot imagine my life without this this massive thing in it. And, and it turns out a relegation season is proving that the, the match itself is often so incidental, which is why I think people enjoy the book, um, because it's about the, the other things around the match. Okay, uh, wonderful to speak to Dan, and I could not agree with that. I, f- I feel like I should clip that message and should play it, perhaps pre pre uh, pre every game in Anfield. Uh, let's get it out on loudspeakers across the country. Uh, could not agree more. It's always a joy to speak to Dan Gray, and so everyone who we've had on the show this week. It's been quite the cast of thousands: John Keith, uh, Robbie Fowler, Craig Hannon for for lumping in there and doing the work he did at Utah, speaking to Robbie. Uh, we've also had uh, John Gibbons and uh, Andy Heaton speaking to Xabi Alonso as well. It's been a it's been a very very thorough time of it. Uh, this is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. Enjoy your football this weekend whatever you're doing go up and down the country have a fabulous time because you know what's the point of it all if not that sports social podcast network